If you would, turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 29. We're going to cover three chapters in part, not all of it. Um, this is Job's last um, monologue-type comments before God shows up. And it's really important that we remember where we've come from so that we understand and be able to locate what Job here is summarizing. Now, if you remember from last week, we had that psalm that, that Job 28 that that scholars kind of wrestle with, and we understand that, but it's a beautiful psalm, and it's very consistent with the whole of biblical theology, and actually serves as a great uh, summation at that point of what's going on in the book of Job, and a great way for us to be able to understand what really is Job about, because as we've said, what Job is not about is teaching us how we are to suffer well. It actually teaches us instead that God is sovereign, and out of God's sovereignty, we will be able to suffer well. So you don't want to get the cart before the horse. How many people, uh, maybe you yourself have done this, you were suffering and you said, let me turn to the book of Job, only to realize you might as well have turned to the book of Leviticus. It was that almost foreign to you. You couldn't figure out what in the world are they saying? Where's the comfort in any of this? Many people read chapters one and two and then the, they read the very end, chapter 42, and that's sufficient for them, but you're missing out on a whole host of things. What Job 28 does is it helps us to understand that the fear of the Lord is the true beginning of wisdom. The book of Job is about how to live a wise life under the sovereignty of God, ultimately. And remember what we talked about. Remember that fear is three things, that you are in reverence and awe of God's sovereignty, that you recognize his omniscience, meaning that he knows everything. His omnipotence, that he's all-powerful and can do anything. His omnipresence, meaning that he is all places. There is no darkness into which he cannot step and shine his light, which is good news for you and I, because we have at many times fled as far as we can, and he has yet pursued us. We ought to have reverence and awe for the God who condescends and condescends and condescends to be with his people. Do you know that he is present with us right now? Whether you feel it or not, he has promised, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I am there also, his spirit moving. Do you have an awe and a reverence for that? Did you come expecting that? Or instead, are you more concerned with how you feel? Your ability to sing the songs, whether or not you know them, whether or not you like them, whether or not me starting at 11.15 means we're not getting out of here until 12.15. Is that more your concern? Or did you come expecting that the Lord, his word, would not return void, which is why our service is saturated with God's word from beginning to end? Because that is the most important thing we could hear, even though you get some of my monologue. And so are you, are you in awe? of the God who continues to hold all things together. How this world has not blown itself apart, I have no idea. Given the rhetoric and the hatred and the bloodshed and the insanity on all sides, I don't know. If he's not holding it together, I don't know who is. And secondly, remember that it, uh, fearing the Lord means that you would obey his commandments because in obeying his commandments is truly life more abundant. 
And I don't have a long time to talk about this, but one of the things that we get wrong and one of the most masterful things that Satan has done to evangelicalism and Christianity as a whole is he introduced this little term, which is basically saying, did God really mean what he said? And that term is legalism. How often does that get leveled time and again the moment you bring up obedience? Well, that's legalism. No, that's insanity. Legalism is you thinking that you can save yourself apart from God. That's what Eve and Adam were trying to do when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It says Eve looked at the fruit and thought that it would make her wise. To obey God and submit to God is not legalism. Stop believing a lie. The law, if you remember, was given when in redemptive history? After the exodus. They'd already been redeemed. The law was not going to redeem them. It was going to teach them how to live with a holy God who could destroy them without a mediator. The law was good, but it also taught us that we could not go it alone. That being separated from God was not what was ultimately part of the plan. He longs to be restored and be in the presence of his people. So us obeying his commandments. How do you interpret when Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments? Is that casual? Is that informal? Is that, I love Jesus. What is, what is that? It is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That has significant worship implications. We are so lax when it comes to worship. I know you're thinking, he went to Midway this week. Like, he went to Jared, you can tell. He went to a worship conference. He's all jacked up. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. But hopefully for the glory of the Lord. We, we think that if, if you think about how the, the, the trends have gone, if somebody brings up your devotional life, immediately we scoff. <laughs> devotional life. Come on, man. I'm a Christian. What? What? Why is it okay for us not to be disciplined? Why is that legalism to show any level of discipline whatsoever in terms of our relationship with God? Are we crazy? Third, it means that we have a genuine hatred for evil. To fear the Lord means to hate what he hates. And that is critical that we understand what's evil, right? Those we disagree with, right? No. No, you who look through a glass half darkly. No. Evil is anything that separates us from God, even things that look good. Evil is anything that keeps us from his presence and our ability to glorify him. That is evil. And we need to hate whatever keeps us from him. I know it's not a popular term. I don't like it either. I'm thoroughly postmodern in, in, in that regard. But it is a term that we need to understand the gravity of because we don't understand the gravity of being separated from God. We think there's another Savior coming. What does Hebrews say? If you trample underfoot this Savior, there's not another one coming. You reject this one and you're done. No one else can pull you from the fire. That is gravity. 
and we take it way too lightly. So when the scriptures speak of fearing the Lord, it is all those things. It's not that we cower from him because he longs for us to be present with him and to worship him and to enjoy him and to be more human than we are without him. See, that's the mistake that the progressive ideas have made. They think that somehow you become more human if you get to decide whether or not there's a human in your stomach when you are pregnant. They think that it's more human to be able to decide what it was you were created to be. That somehow that's more freedom and not Pandora's box. Woe be unto us when we call that which is evil good and that which is good evil. We have been warned. It is not that I am just some old fuddy-duddy who's gotten grumpy and wants to make sure like the Puritans that if there's somebody having fun somewhere, I need to stop that. No, I want you to be even more alive. I want you to drink deeper of the fount of living water. I want you to have life and life more abundant, not to be robbed by false gospels, false idols, false freedoms. So it's important that we have a genuine fear of the Lord because then what that leads to is wisdom. And wisdom is how to live in a way that brings glory to God which means you are most free. We've forgotten that somewhere. We are not wise people overall. We don't know how to navigate situations and circumstances like we ought to. We make terrible decisions all the time because we don't seek the Lord, because we think we're smarter than we are, because we don't spend time in Scripture. I've said this before. I want to say it again. You have no earthly idea how you're setting yourself up for failure a year from now because of your lack of devotion and your lack of prayer today. You don't know what's not being put in the tank that you will need some certain days from now when the storm which inevitably will blow in blows in. Or you meet someone who desperately needs a word from the Lord and you are that vessel, but you are barren because you have put nothing in the vessel for weeks and months and years because you're afraid of what you may find. You're afraid of how it may impose upon the decisions that you've already made, the life that you've already set up. You fear life and life more abundant. You're satisfied with what you have and not what you could have. And so that sets us up. Because remember, Job is referred to as a man who fears the Lord in Job 1. And so this is how God is going to be able to say, Job has spoken well of me. And we're going to see in his closing statement, Job's great wisdom, though he doesn't have his theology all the way figured out. That's something that we can't seem to get our heads around. We think, I got to get my theology all worked out and figured out before I can do anything wise. No, there's certain things that are abjectly clear. There's no arguing on, there's no figuring out, there's no mystery to, and those things are how you should live the law. You're called to love your neighbor. That is not up for grabs. And you know when you're not doing it. It doesn't take the Holy Spirit to write it in Sanskrit on your bathroom mirror for you to figure out. 
But we think we've got to understand infralapsarianism or God's providence in toto before we can move. No. Did the Israelites, when the cloud was leading them by day and the fire by night, did they have it all worked out before they would follow it? No. Not even close. So we're not going to be able to have our theology all worked out without living wisely first. Your theology will, ri will rise from your obedience to worship, your reverence of God, and your fearing of the Lord. We continually put the cart before the horse and make it ivory tower. Job doesn't do that. His friends are the ones who are doing that. They got no skin in the game. They're the ones philosophizing and theologizing and saying a bunch of nonsense. They are the windbags. But Job is at least wrestling at the visceral level and continues to hold the line. He continues to live in wisdom and refuses to reject the Lord his God. Even though he is told, this is the way out. He says, no. So the question I have for you, and this is an important question, and I want everybody in the room to listen to me right now. Do you fear the Lord? I don't care how old you are. There is no excuse. You don't get to, as a third grader, you don't have the liberty to say, well, I'm not old enough yet to fear the Lord. No, you are. You, you, you know the basic difference between right and wrong. You really do. I know you know because you lie. And you wouldn't lie if you didn't understand there's things that you shouldn't do. And no one taught you how to do that. I'm not mad at you because you do that because I did it too. We all do it. That doesn't make it right. But from third grade on up, you must ask yourself this question. It is a critical question. Do you fear the Lord based on what is biblical fear? And if you can't say yes, then you need to deal with your salvation with fear and trembling because you may not be what you think you are. Now, I know you're thinking in perfect, good, raw American fashion, who in the world do you think you are questioning my salvation? I said the prayer. I've got the prayer of Jabez at the house. I've looked at it once. Let me tell you how I can question it by the fruit on the tree. See, we think that as long as there's not bad fruit, meaning the things we don't do, it doesn't matter that there's no fruit. Let me ask you a question. When Jesus came upon the fig tree that had no fruit on it, what did he do? One of the most mysterious passages in all of Scripture because we don't want to actually know what it says. He cursed it. He cursed the lukewarm tree. Who will be spewed from God's mouth? The lukewarm. We need to recognize that a lack of fruit is a much more dangerous possibility than bad fruit. Because that means we're confused and we don't know what we are. That is incredibly dangerous. The beautiful thing about Job is he knows exactly who he is based on the fruit that's on the tree. He is able to examine himself. Even Paul says, I judge myself. And if you don't have the ability to look at the fruit on the tree, and what, so what's the fruit? How do we know? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is, is part of it. Like you not doing something dastardly, but you're mean as squat to people. That is a fruitless tree. And that is something that should be dealt with. 
And we in our tradition are filled, unfortunately, with men who don't do lots of bad things, but who are mean as squat to people. They're not gentle, they're not kind, they show no joy, and we don't say a word. We put them in leadership. What? We ought to be bringing them up on charges. Then we might see movement, but we're afraid to do that because if I, if I start looking at your fruit, guess what you might do to mine? You're going to start trying to, well, I'm surprised you could see my lack of fruit around that giant plank in your fat head. How do you even see around all that wood? We need to love each other enough to say there's something missing. To be known enough by each other to say there's something missing. Now, are you... Some of you may be worried that what I may be suggesting is that you need to run to downtown Atlanta and serve the poor. That's fruit. That'd be awesome. But that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying begin with your family, how you love your spouse, how you love your children, how you love your parents, how you care for your neighbor. Let's start simple. Let's not go crazy. Let's not all jump on a plane to China just yet. It's not about, we always want to go, you know, big because we're American and we like like, like if Michael Bay were doing this, stuff would be blown up left and right to make the illustration. But, but, it, but I'm not him, and, so, so, and neither is God. It's more about the simple day-to-day. Again, if I want to know what you are, really, the fruit, all I need to see is a couple things. How you spend your time and how you spend your resources. How you're willing to serve others. But because we've made Christianity the eighth or tenth priority in our lives, we are fruitless, and we can't be okay with that. So you need to wrestle with, deal with, repent of, be encouraged by your answer to the question, do you fear the Lord, and what does this look like in your life? Is he, is he cordoned off? Is he prepackaged and put into these different little categories that you have created for him, or is he Lord of all? And if he is Lord of all, what does that look like? Now, am I talking about perfection? No, because I'm standing up here. I can't talk about perfection because I am not. I'd be the greatest hypocrite in the room if I tried to lead you down that path. But are you struggling even well to try to fear the Lord? What effort are you even putting into your fear of the Lord? How do you know how to be reverent and in awe of him if you never crack open his word, if you don't study it, if you never talk to him? What's interesting to me is oftentimes I can tell what you think of the Lord by how you treat your spouse. Because we often treat our spouse as to how we treat the Lord or some other family member. It's often very, very revealing. And it's something that we should think about. Listen to what Francis I. Anderson, Old Testament scholar, says of what we're about to read. He says, chapters 29 through 31 grow out of Job 28, 28, for Job is the wise man. And here we learn in detail what it meant to fear God and shun wrong. Let's turn to the text and look at Job as he is summing up his situation. We'll read verses 1 through 6 from chapter 29. I would encourage you to read the rest of it on your own and kind of hash through some of it. You who have the devotional, there's some stuff in there that, that could be helpful to you. If you have questions, particularly as you read the rest of 29, don't hesitate to email me, call me. Let's get together and talk about it. That's what we're here for, to serve you in this way. But if you would, hear God's word. 
And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. Notice that what Job is most concerned about is not what he has lost in terms of the physical, in terms of the material, in terms of the personal, but instead he is most concerned with what he has lost spiritually. He is most concerned with having lost God's friendship. Remember, all along he's been describing himself as an adversary of God. He feels as if God has turned on him and he cannot figure out why. Is that your great concern when something goes wrong? Are you first to look and see where God's favor is in reference to you? Are you when something is, blows in on you, are you quick to ask, Lord, where are you? Where am I in reference to you? Where is your love and your friendship? Those are great things to ask. But often that's not what we do, is it? We, we, we lament the actual loss of the thing. And so here, Job is putting it in right perspective and evidencing wisdom. He is also recognizing that it is the Lord his God who has given him everything. Everything he had came from the Lord his God. And this is him confirming what he said early on. The Lord gives and as Job now knows, the Lord also violently takes away. And he does not yet know why, and in essence, never is told why. And so Job is recognizing the sovereignty of the Lord and evidencing that fear, that reverence and awe. He's saying, I wish I had it back. I think it's kind of odd to say that he wishes his steps were washed with butter. I think that's dangerous but I, I think I get it. And oil, butter and oil where you walk. Okay. But Job is saying that what is most important to him, and if you read on, all the things he talks about flow out of that. In essence, it's kind of like uh, when it talks about being an elder, that every man ought to desire to have the qualifications to be an elder. This Job is saying, I desire to have the qualifications to be one who glorifies God in every single circumstance. Is that your desire? Is your desire that you could, would evidence God's glory under every circumstance and be known for that? Or are you more concerned with people thinking that you are relevant? That you are a Christian who can listen to the Dave Matthews band? There, is that even still possible, Joe? That was you, right? Or a Christian who can, who can, who can hang out, have fun, and, and, and speak any kind of way. Your speech is inconsequential because those are all just Victorian sensibilities. Who cares about language? Trust me, I grew up in a trailer park. I know all about language. I also grew up in the inner city. I know some, even some cuss words that got made up. And none of it pleases the Lord. You cannot make the argument 
in a thousand years that when the Lord says that you should not bless the Lord with your mouth and curse others out of the other side of your mouth and think that that's ever okay. See, Job is concerned with God's glory and how he feels as if it is departed from him. He is most concerned with how it affects those around him as well, which is what he goes on to say in the rest of 29. Listen to what scholar John Hartley says of this passage. He says, in a grateful manner, Job acknowledges that God, not his own wisdom and shrewdness, has been the source of his wealth. Job never lets his pride lead him to make the claim that he had been the genius behind his success. His conviction about God's blessing keeps his lament focused on the real cause of his pain, a ruptured relationship with God. Since he never abandons his gratitude for God's past favor, his lament flows from real hurt. So how important is God's friendship and presence to you? How important is it that all of your life glorifies the Lord your God? See, this is, this is a, a great question for all of us in this room. And I understand there's some generational gaps here that as you think about it, you're, you're, how you think about it oftentimes for those of you who are younger than maybe 25 or maybe younger than 30, part of it is you're thinking, well, yeah, Cameron, you've gotten old, right? And, uh, and you no longer have a lot of hope left in this world uh, just by looking at you. And um, you've got kids and you've had to settle down. And you See, I can still rip and run, bro. I'll settle down when it's time. As if you control the clock as if you can control your desire for God and it doesn't come from him. I understand that the church as a whole and some of its manifestations in culture is absolutely awful. I guarantee you, you don't hate it more than I do. As a former radical anti-theist who the sword never went away from. But are you pushing against a straw man that is not the church at all? And do you even know because you've studied the word? It is important for us to care about God's presence and friendship in our life. It is important for us to care about our ability to glorify him. That's, those are not arguable in the Christian life. And Job evidences that. Turn to chapter 30, picking it up in verse 16. Now Job is going to rehash his circumstances. We've heard a lot of this before, but it's important for us to go back through it. And Job is actually going to do something that is very similar to what happens in the Psalms. Oftentimes in the Psalms, the psalmist will begin to be, talk about God, and it so ignites his affections that he now is talking to God. You know how you're reading along in the psalm and it's kind of, he's speaking out that way and then all of a sudden you find him speaking uh, um, vertically, not horizontally anymore. Job's going to do that, but in lament, which again, I have argued that we as a culture don't have the right categories for. We don't have the ability to grieve well. We don't know how to lament. We worry about if we sing too many songs in D minor or, or minor at all. Uh, we need to pep it up. I'm sure that's some of what you're thinking even from today. I don't care. And God doesn't care. God, there's a time for lament and we're not there yet. We're not yet ready to celebrate. 
Um, and so it's important that we recognize that even in wrestling with the things of God, that oftentimes it turns us to him. And this is the point of Job. Watch what happens. Picking up verse 16. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones, and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force, my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. Here's where it turns. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride on it, and you toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all living." Yet, does not the one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand and in his disaster cry for help? Did not I weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? But when I hoped for good, evil came. And when I waited for light, darkness came. My inward parts are in turmoil and never still. Days of affliction have come to meet me. I go about darkened but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I am the brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. My skin turns black and falls from me and my bones burn with heat. My lyre is turned to mourning and my pipe to the voice of those who weep. Notice that as he is wrestling with these things of God, it causes him to turn to the Lord himself and to cry to him. He never never rejects God. He's still continuing after all of this conversation, after all of these chapters, he continues to go to the only one who can be his redeemer who lives, who can stand with him upon the, uh, on the trash heap. But he feels like he is becoming. Notice the language as he talks about, I am becoming dust and ashes. Many of you, some of you very young, have struggled much in the same way. The night has racked your bones. There has been a sorrow that has crept in on you as you have longed for what you think is freedom until you have to start paying bills and you realize, oh gosh, I want to move back home. Job is saying things that we have said but are afraid to say in the assembly. Yet he is not afraid to stand up in the assembly and cry for help. So many of us, we're just not. We don't even make use of the prayer. You can't tell me in this room full of people that there is none of you who needs prayer. You can't. I know too many of you. And yet, week after week, our prayer team stands back there and hardly anybody comes. Week after week, we have hardly anybody fill out the prayer cards. Why? What is that evidence? Because we don't believe prayer matters. And we're afraid that someone would know we're struggling because we're more concerned with what we, what we don't do and how we're perceived than the truth. And so we're unable to actually be the church. We're just the Kiwanis Club who barely knows each other. Job doesn't feel this way. He's letting you know. He's letting God know. As he said, Why wouldn't the one who's suffering stand upon the heap and extend his hand and cry for help? He is crying to the Lord. He is crying to the assembly. He's crying out to whomever. Notice the language that he uses about the storm. That's going to be really important because who shows up in the storm? And does the storm destroy Job or redeem him? 
His time in the storm becomes redemptive. The whirlwind, as it were. Interestingly, he says, I've become the brother of jackals and ostriches. Pay attention next week as God speaks of both of those and says, I am there also. You are not alone. So Job is racked and broken. And yet his theology isn't all the way worked out, is it? He's not being a good doctrines of grace Presbyterian, or is he? I would say that he actually is, more so than many of us are. He's placing the emphasis upon the right syllables. And so, listen at what um, um, John Walton says of this passage. He says, the book of Job is teaching us about God and his policies, not offering Job as a biblical paradigm for how we approach suffering. We will learn more about surviving crises by understanding God than by imitating Job. Therefore, we ought to be more discerning and allow Job his weaknesses, a flawed theology, and a deficient view of God at times. Such allowances is essential because we often share his shortcomings. Suffering oftentimes radically calls into question so much of what we thought we believed. And we think that some, for some reason that's bad. No, what it does is it can actually solidify what you ought believe and who God really is. What a blessing so often that suffering affords us that ability. We don't view it that way. And I know you may be thinking, that's easy for you to say. Well, no, it's not easy for me to say at all. In fact, I'm fearful of saying it because I have suffered much and I don't want to do any more of it if I can help it. But chances are, I will especially being the pastor of a church of people for whom suffering blows in and out all the time. Turn back to the text. We'll finish with the last chapter. Um, this is actually, I'll give you a little background before I read all 40 verses, and I'll go quickly. Um, I'm going to give you the exegesis first so you can just listen. Um, this is an ancient technique for one who is defending themselves. So you take these if oaths. Right? So Job is going to say, if I have done this, then I am worthy of this cursing. It's what you do if you're trying to establish your innocence. So you're essentially saying, I, I don't believe myself to be guilty. And so if God doesn't curse Job in the ways in which are mentioned, if God remains silent, then that means that Job is what? Not guilty. What's interesting is God is going to speak. And he's not going to curse Job in any of these ways. He's going to restore him because it's actually true. So often we read this chapter and we think, Job, you arrogant punk. Because we're so, we're so capital T on the tulip. How can a totally depraved man ever defend his integrity? That's legalism. What? What do you mean you can't ever be encouraged by obedience to the Lord and your integrity? If you have no integrity to defend, then what are you? We do our children a horrific disservice when we don't teach them that them being integrous is something to be celebrated and is good. It doesn't save them, but it does reveal God's glory. So Job is going to actually list a bunch of things that we could categorize as loving the Lord his God and loving his neighbor. And no time does he speak of internal piety. It's all external. It's all fruit that can be seen and either confirmed or denied. 
We do the opposite. We try to lie about our internal piety and say nothing about the fact there is zero fruit to bad fruit on the tree. But listen to how Job defends himself. Pay attention, and you would do well to at some point in your studies this week, go back and walk through this list and ask, could you say these things? Could you defend your integrity in this way? I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? He's saying, I couldn't get away with it even if it was internal. Think about what Christ says when he says, it's not that you commit adultery physically, it's that you commit it in your heart. That's what Job just said. He says, I haven't done that. And God would know if I had. If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat and let what grows from me be rooted out. If my heart has been enticed toward a woman and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down on her. For that would be a heinous crime. That would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for that would be a fire that consumes as far as Abaddon or destruction, and it would burn to the root all my increase. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? If I have withheld anything that the poor desired, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the fatherless has not eaten of it. For from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me, and if he was not warmed within the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. Notice that Job spends more time talking about how he treats the poor than anything else. Could you say, God, tear my arm from the socket if I have not dealt with the poor who have come across my path. If I have not treated the widow and the fatherless well, I don't think you should say that. But we should be able to. As the church, as the church, we should be able to cry all of these things in righteousness and integrity. For I was in terror of calamity from God, and I could not have faced his majesty. If I have made gold my trust, or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant, or because my hand had found much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon moving in splendor, and my heart has been secretly enticed, and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false." to God above. Now, what you may not know is as he talks about the sun and the moon and the kissing of his hand, that is taking a vow for another God. He's saying, I have gone after no other God. You alone are my God. 
If I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me or exulted when evil overtook him, I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. If the men of my tent have not said, who is there that has not been filled with this meat? The sojourner has not lodged in the street. I have opened my doors to the traveler. If I have concealed my transgressions as others do by hiding my iniquity in my bosom because I stood in great fear of the multitude and the contempt of families terrified me so that I kept silence and did not go out of the doors. Oh, that I had one to hear me. He's saying, if in any way I have feared what man would think of me instead of what God would think of me, woe be unto me. He goes on, here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps like a prince I would approach him if my land has cried out against me and its furrows have wept together. If I have eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, let that thorns grow instead of wheat and fowls and weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. Job defends feverishly his integrity because he fears the Lord his God. We have lost the ability somewhere to defend our integrity. We are far more concerned about what we don't do than what we do. Notice what he says. He says, I have treated all of my neighbors, all of them, poor, rich, old, young, traveler, woman, whatever. I've treated them all equally. Notice what he said. For we were formed by the same God and have essentially come from the same womb. What a beautiful confession of faith that is not arrogant, that is not legalistic, that is actually in keeping with the commands, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Would that we could say, we, Christ's community, we do that. And we do it fervently, even if at times imperfectly. Even if oftentimes imperfectly. Because trying to love other people is risky, isn't it? Listen to what William Henry Green, Puritan, says. Man can never comprehend the absolute wisdom, but the Most High has, in condescending mercy, revealed to him all that is necessary for his practical guidance. He may not presume to know how God governs the world or what rules he prescribes for his own procedure, i.e., Isaiah 55, 8 through 13, which we read earlier. But he has been sufficiently taught how to direct his own conduct and govern his own life. You, we, I am without excuse. Just because you don't read it doesn't mean you shouldn't know. Just because you don't take the time doesn't mean you're off the hook. You are charged to fear the Lord your God. Reverend, in all of his sovereignty, keeping his commands to the more abundant life, hating what is evil, so that you could become wise. Let us all be without excuse and instead grow in our affection to honor him, to glorify him in all that we do. So what do we get from this? 
One, our greatest gift and desire should be friendship with God. That should be, from young to old, that should be every single one of you in this room. None of you is somehow, some way. this is not important until you reach a certain age or you have a near-death experience, or both. All of us are under this. Second, suffering can confuse our theology. And it does, doesn't it? But is that the end of the story? No, Job teaches us no. Third, how we are to live with integrity is biblically clear. You can't say you don't know if you don't take the time to engage it as you were called to and given the clarity of his word. Job detailed for us a wonderful list in one chapter that even if that's all you were able to do, if that's all you were able to even think about, you would be ahead of the curve because that sums up a ton of biblical theology in one chapter. David Atkinson in his commentary, The Message of Job, says this, Job knows in his heart that his problem will be relieved not by theological dispute, nor by penitence for sins which he has not committed, nor by pulling his socks up, but by the gift of communion with God. Let's pray.